Welcome to T3, Today, Tomorrow's Technologies. Your host is Jose Negron. We take the guesswork out of technological jargon so that you know what's next, why it's great or not so great, and how you can benefit from it by learning about it early. Now, here is Jose Negron. Good morning, folks, and welcome, everybody. This is your host, Jose Negron, on voiceamerica.com on the Variety Channel. I'm hosting the leading technology show, T3, Today, Tomorrow's Technologies. And it's shown every Tuesday at 9 a.m. or noon Eastern Time. If you missed our show, you can catch us on Wednesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays on voiceamerica.com, the Variety Channel. As always, I would like to thank my audience for listening. Uh, I had a great report uh, this past week. Our U.S. audience is increasing in numbers, and of course, we always welcome our international audience as well. We continue to increase our listening uh, because we really talk about uh, technology and try to make it easy and simple for the non-techies. And and that is a format that we have used on the show, and it works. Uh, we bring great guests on the show. We talk about the technology, and then, of course, we try to simplify it. Uh, more, more importantly, we try to integrate our scientists, engineers, and innovators' discussions on innovation and, and what I call programs or gadgets that they build and try to explain it to the non-techie. Our show today is quite interesting. U.S. acquisition process, stay the course or change. Uh, that is a topic that is increasing in its discussion. And in the next five to 10 years, you're going to hear more and more about either acquisition reform or acquisition improvement or, or, or some type of changes in the acquisition process. I am especially grateful because I have a guest today, Pascal Gamatiz, uh, Jr., with over 30 years in acquisition experience uh, to help us discuss U.S. acquisition process. Should we stay the course or change? During the, as I said, this is going to be a t- live topic of interest for the Department of Defense. Uh, people are um, frustrated. Uh, you're hearing a lot of, of, of folks complaining because the process takes too long, it's too costly, and we're not um, in, uh, buying weapon systems fast enough or getting the type of weapon systems out there. Plus, the adversary is catching up on a lot of the um, uh, technology domains that we used to be very good at, uh, superior uh, domains. So, Pascal, uh, welcome to T3. Uh, I encourage you to be uh, open in, in your discussions more than anything else. Uh, for the audience, I'm going to break the show down into about three segments. We're going to talk about how Pascal uh, got his education and background in acquisition by discussing some of the schools and trainings he's had. In the second segment, we'll talk about the process itself and start working the recommendations to that process. And finally, the third, we'll get into a little bit more exciting. What are some of the programs that have worked or failed? What did we learn? What can we learn? How do we move the program forward? So, Pascal, any ideas on on where do we go from here? And tell us a little bit about your education as you began to tackle the acquisition process. Uh, Jose, uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me to be on your show. Uh, I've been an acquisition guy for a long time. Used to refer to myself as an acquisition twink. Just kind of a cute little nickname we gave ourselves. And uh, uh, I I tell people I've had a very fortunate career. I've been involved in a lot of really exciting programs. Uh, A lot of the details we can't talk about on this show for obvious reasons. But um, got my start over 30 years ago. Um, Started off really in the test business. And then as I 
guess, displayed a little bit of leadership ability. The, the management started moving into more of a management, pers- uh, from a, look at it from a management perspective, understanding uh, the three things that are very important to an acquisition program manager, cost, schedule, and performance. Um, it's critical that people understand those things, and we'll discuss that a little bit more uh, as we go through. So, uh, you know, talk about education. Um, again, as, as I was able to, to show my leadership I could I could handle more and more responsibility. Started taking the the uh, the training that was required. The, the Defense Acquisition University, uh, that's the DoD's prime uh, premier school. Uh, they they're teaching people, you know, not only from a program management perspective, but from engineering, test, logistics, uh, finance. There's there's a, a multitude of different uh, certifications that they offer, and I, I think those are critical. There's a a lot of schools out there that want to teach people how to be program managers and all that. But and I've had this discussion uh, with several companies that I've I've been talking with or dealing with, as well as some folks that are still in the the business. Was uh, the DAU is the place to go because they look at things before if if people are working on a government program, a DOD mm-hmm. acquisition program, right. they really need to understand what it's all about. You know, one of the oldest sayings, follow the money, right? One of the first classes they taught me was follow, follow the, money. the money. How do, how does the money get appropriated? How does it, and then what our obligation and expenditure rates are uh, and, and what the expectations are of the program manager uh, on, on whatever program he or she may be may be leading. So I, I did the DAU thing. I, I, I took the, the, the first level classes, the second level classes, and finally the third level class. So I, I hold a level three certification in program management and test and evaluation as well as engineering. So I was able, to, because of the different jobs, and, and what I like about the DAU is you don't just get it because you take the class and pass the test. You have to have the chops, meaning you have to have done it. I was a hands-on test engineer, for instance, for over 10 years. So that that's what led to me being able to get the level three certification. And again, what they focused on was, okay, how do we do it from a DOD perspective? Right. How do we write the test and evaluation master plan, for instance? Mm-hmm. And then again, from the program management side, how does the money come? How do you how do you provide the leadership on uh, from the, the folks that you're you're leading into producing something for our ultimate customer, the warfighter? Um, so I did. I did the three levels for PM. I did the three levels for test and evaluation. On the systems engineering piece, I, I kind of got grandfathered into that way back when, when they first started the whole Defense Acquisition Workforce Improvement Act, otherwise known as DEWIA, uh, because of the experiences that I brought to the table. So that that got me started. But again, through the years, I was I was uh, fortunate enough to to go into several different types of classes. Right, and Pascal, I mean, when I hear you speak and tell the audience about your background, I mean, you've got a lot of certifications. Uh, you're a very rare individual as far as certifications uh, goes because they're hard to come by nowadays. Uh, and a young individual doesn't get the type of experience that you've had in, in as you said, in testing, program management, budgeting. Those are hard. Um, you're right, Jose. They are. It's um, again. I say I have. I'll say it over and over. I've had a very fortunate career. Some mm-hmm. very great doors were opened up to me. But again, it comes back down to be as. As I moved along my career and showed my leadership, I could get stuff done. So, and let me park on the certification business. So, I've also been in a position where I've had to hire a lot of people. Right. Right. And and, and what I look for when when I have uh, an obligation to produce something for the warfighter, I, I look at their certifications, but I also look at what have they done? Have they been able to produce results? Or you know, and and I think we've all seen this, and I know you have in your career. Where people they, they pursue a lot of certifications and that list as long as they're armed, but they really haven't done anything. Right. So my the way I'm the way I approach, however I'm staffing an office, whatever I'm doing, I'm looking for that certification, 
And then what, what have they done? Why was their previous organization better off because they were there, uh, you know, when they were there, uh, when they left and when they started? Right, uh, right. Too often, I think we get enamored by job titles and stuff like that. And, and there's a reason why I'm talking about all this, because at the end of the day, you know, we talk about act reform and we'll, we'll talk about that some more. But we've really been doing many people may not realize we've been doing act reform and downsizing uh, since I became a civil servant back in March of 1989. That's when it all started. And so in order to do that. Again, we, we must look at the whole person. What does this person bring to the table? If this person's an engineer, what are his or her accomplishments? Along with, you know, what, right. what kind of education did they get? So looking at all that is, is what's really important in building out a team to do some stuff. We're, we're, you know, this show's about technology. We've, I've been involved in some of the most amazingly technology-advanced programs in the world. Uh, in order to do that, you, you have to have the best of breed, mm-hmm. which, which includes not only the DAU training, but... What can they do? What is their what is their what is their work ethic? Are they working hard to support the ultimate customer, the warfighter? That, that's what's driven me throughout my career. I, I, I had an epiphany many years ago. My job was to equip our, our U.S. warfighters with the best that I could possibly give them of myself, and therefore the weapons and sensors that I provided for them. Right, and and that's going to be a challenge because what makes it a challenge is uh, digitalization, uh, the new microchip. Uh, people get uh, get the chance to go just buy it off the the, the shelves today, and and that uh, superior or like air dominance or maritime dominance or ground dominance, those are almost a thing of the past. But what keeps us going is exactly what you just said. You're you're providing the warfighter the best equipment possible, and I I firmly believe and as you say yourself you believe that you provide the warfighter with the best equipment so we, we we're still at that edge but uh, people are catching up and how we go about it uh, we need to keep going absolutely and, and even now I, I have a little more skin in the game than I did 10 years ago my son is a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force so he's he's a benefactor of some of the things that I'm right. doing so but even even when he wasn't they got the best of the best so you know it's the whole leading edge, techn- leading edge technology, we've, we, we have tried a lot of things, you know, going through the process, the different approaches and trying to buy things. And buying something off the shelf and, and trying to tailor that for a specific need is, is very, very hard. Rare is the occasion when we've been able to do that. And only when we're looking at the most simplest of weapons or sensors. And, you know, if you look at JDAM, the Joint Direct Attack Munitions, fairly simple weapon system. Uh, uh, that was easy to build and, and, and very, very affordable and a very, very effective weapon. But the whole business of COTS and all that stuff, my experience says, so my experience and what I've learned over mm-hmm. the years, so part of my education was rare is the occasion when you can literally take something off the shelf, throw it into a very specific military system and make it work. Usually we have to do some hardening techniques uh, from either uh, electromagnetic interference perspective mm-hmm. so that it doesn't get zapped by an environment or there has to be some other things we have to do to make sure that people can't uh, reverse engineer to come in back into that chip to see how the family jewels are working for us. Absolutely. While off the shelf sounds very uh, appealing and it's cost effective, uh, there are there are costs. There's a secondary and tertiary cost for that. Uh, you can get the, that system moving with that particular chip or that particular system, uh, but there's some um, hard wiring, there's some hardening, there's some uh, actual uh, testing that has to be done to ensure that the warrior can uh, uh, it can perform in all environments because you know it doesn't have to be a sunny day. I mean, right. and that's the critical part. And you're exactly right. And, and those are the things that you know. There's a, uh, there's a lot of buzz terms in the acquisition business, like anything else. We used to call those the unknown unknowns. 
right? We thought we were going to buy, to your point, we thought we were going to buy something we were able to just plug and play, uh, but then we didn't realize, oh, I have to do hardening tests. Oh, what's the reg for that? What's the process? What's the what's the approval then to make that happen? And a lot of times we just don't know because we're doing something for the first time, which on one hand is a good thing, right? You got to push mm-hmm. the envelope, but on the other side, we have to do some more investigation on looking at it from a holistic per- approach. And, and that's probably one of the best of all the education I've had in the training. There's all the DAU stuff. Um, I've been sent to a lot of leadership classes. But probably the best lesson I learned was to take the step backwards and say, Can, I must look at this from a holistic approach and also make sure I surround myself with the right people. I, I know what my limitations are. Right. I know I'm not technically deep. You know, I have a skill at leading people and getting things done. But when it comes down to talking the, the inner workings of advanced radars and sensors and all that stuff. I'm not I'm not the guy for that. But what I learned a long time ago, surround myself with the right people and then prompt them to ask the right questions of the vendor or vendors that are involved in what we're doing. So that's that's probably the single most important lesson I learned. And you can't you can't get that at DAU. You can't get that from any book learning or any management or leadership question take any place else. You get that from doing. Right. And observing. Doing and observing and being comfortable with your limits. You got to understand your yeah. limits. Exactly. Uh, I remember uh, just a little quick story, but it adds to what you're thinking about is everybody who's leading a program should know their weaknesses. And and as you say, I surround myself with some strong folks to cover those weaknesses so that we have some overlap. I mean, not everybody, and especially in today's world, where you get one individual or one company, they can't do it all. You need two or three companies to do it, two or three individuals to do it. I'm a firm believer of that, but you got to surround yourself and not be... Uh, uh, I guess overwhelmed by their knowledge. You you still got to lead. They can't lead. They have the knowledge. They have the smart knowledge. They have the training knowledge. But they don't. You know, they're that you're in the position to lead, and you have to make those judgments. So if you sit, if you could go back and to look at your career, what's one thing you wish you would have done better? I guess. For for me personally, I um, I think I would have. Uh, I probably should have become a little more technically. Uh, adept at what I was doing. Um, that was just one thing I, I always decided. Let you know, let the engineers be the engineers, and mm-hmm. and all that. But I, I wish I would have done that. And you know, I have a little bit of a technical background. Right. I chose to focus more on the leadership, and and also I think I would have uh, studied. You know, leading people a little bit more. You know, I, I learned some lessons the hard way, right. which is not good when you have a limited when you have limited resources, limited time, limited budget. You have to make the most of, of everything that you're doing. And so there were some leadership lessons I was stubborn against. And when I finally drank the Kool-Aid on those, uh, mm-hmm. I ended up, uh, I was able to be more effective because I was able to take uh, a greater advantage of those people that were surrounding me with the, with the, with the skill sets that we needed. Right. We've got a couple minutes here. Uh, one of the things, and I'll just reinforce what you said, I mean, it's critical as a leader to know when to bring in the folks and also when to really fire them or educate them. Uh, I always give a, give an individual an opportunity to learn. Uh, but after two times, you, you got to make the hard calls. And I'm sure over time you've made the hard calls. You, would you say that's probably the hardest thing you've done or? Yes, because that usually it's, it's subjective. Right? Yes. Um, and you know, we, we've tried to make things more objective here recently, and, and it really doesn't work. You have to, when I was, you know, I was a level three supervisor, when I was training the young program managers, I said, you can't rely on 
this plethora of tools that were telling us these dashboards and everything, I said, you have to, some of that is leading with your gut. You have to assess what's going on. Take that step back and say, okay, what do we do next? And you're exactly right. There are times when you say, okay, we've engineered enough or we've logistics enough and it's time to move forward to press on to the, to the next aspect in a program. Yeah, because the program can continue to grow. Changes come uh, just about every day, and a good idea is always there. So you know, as a program manager, you've got to make the decision, hey, it's good enough, and let's press on. Uh, as we begin to wrap up, we've got about a minute left. Uh, is there something uh, that you would tell a young man right who's starting? What I would say to any young person come up in acquisition business, go into with eyes wide open. And, and understand what your role is. And, and your role as the program manager is to serve your customer. And if you have that, Perfect. if you have a, a personal uh, vision or mission statement for yourself, it's serving the customer. Well, folks, you're listening to T3 today, Tomorrow's Technologies. Uh, your host is Jose Negron. And we're talking about U.S. acquisition process, state of course, a change. I'm here discussing the acquisition process with Pascal Gambatiz. He's got 30 years experience and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Divorce or domestic family issues can take their toll not only on the adults who are party to it, but also to their children. Sometimes separation or divorce are far better solutions than staying around a toxic relationship. Now there's a show that listens and provides solutions. Listen for Reclaiming Your Life with host Don Christensen. In this program, we discuss family crisis issues which can happen to anyone. Divorce with dignity is possible, and working together can achieve wonderful results. Listen Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Today, Tomorrow's Technologies. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to today, Tomorrow's Technologies at gmail.com. Now, back to our show. 
Welcome back, folks. Let's continue our T3 program. And I'm discussing the acquisition process with uh, Pascual Gambatiz, Jr., 30 years acquisition process. And in the first segment, we talked about education and training. We talked about the importance of understanding cost, scheduling, performance. We talked about uh, uh, – we, we mentioned DIU, but I think it's DAU, uh, Defense Acquisition University. So let's make that corrections, D-A-U, and uh, we're talking about how important it was to get a good education, uh, get some good training, and then, of course, uh, the steps itself. And I asked Pascal, you know, if you had to start all over, you know, uh, the leadership, the technology, the engineering, it, it takes a, a total whole man perspective on that. So now I'd like to switch a little bit. Let's talk about the reform process or the uh, – uh, what they call improvements in acquisition. You hear these horror, horror stories. Everybody remembers the, you know, I guess the uh, the hammer story, $1,000 hammer stories. And, uh, and uh, of course, the Army's had some tough, uh, tough uh, acquisition process in the last five, 10 years uh, with the uh, uh, future combat system program, Air Force, uh, you know, with the F-35 just ballooning in costs. Uh, there's other systems out there. And the question is, why do, do those things happen? So I'm here with uh, Pascal. We're going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, I want him to express his opinion on what would he do and how does he really manage a program to ensure it meets the customer's expectation, it, it runs on schedule, runs on cost, and it performs what it's supposed to do. But So, Pascal, let me just turn it over to you and let's talk a little bit about this. So I've been, been doing it for a while. Um, and... Throughout the years, we we've heard the you know the phrase act reform initiatives and all the things that we need to do, and I believe uh, some of those are very well intended. But for, for someone who's worked, I I mostly worked in the program office that that were producing missiles or weapons or sensors or aircraft or whatever. I wasn't I wasn't up here in the Pentagon where people were making big decisions on what we have to do next mm-hmm. to improve. I'll be honest with you, a lot of times everybody just viewed the next great initiative as the same one, just painted a different color. Correct. And 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 having sat in those program offices, basically the people have to execute that new mandate or dictate, as it were in some cases, we uh, we just kind of, we all would roll our eyes and say, okay, fine. For instance, we talked about spiral development, then we talked about block upgrades, and we talked about this, that, and the other things. And at the end of the day, they all were very, very similar. We just, it was just a different shade of gray. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the successes we had is when we just stayed the course to, to do what we were doing. So, you know, uh, ACT Reform seen a lot of different things. Um, I'm, I'm going to bring up a name from the past. If you're familiar with, uh, you know, acquisition, you know, there's a, a lady who was the uh, uh, civilian lead for the, uh, for the Air Force. Her name was Darlene Druyan. Now, we know that there were some problems a little bit later on in her career, but she was a very forward thinker, and she, she had her lightning bolts. And, and I worked for a boss that said, we're going to take these and run. That was extraordinarily successful. At that time, we took all 10 lightning bolts. We integrated them into our program. Uh, we were supposed to go from a 300-person program office down to 102 years. We did it in a year. The lady I was working for, Judy Stokely, a phenomenal leader, phenomenal acquisition expert, she took it serious, and we did it, and we met all of the objectives, and we took to heart everything that was going on. Jose mentioned the $1,000 hammer, the $400 toilet seat, the $250 ashtray. A lot of that has to do with ridiculous requirements and then an, an inordinate amount of reviews mm-hmm. that at every step of the way, 
the, the vendor would have to stop what they were doing, put together 150 glossy slides and say, okay, here's what we said we're going to do and all that. And some of that is crazy. When we went through this, when I was in the air-to-air missile joint system program office, uh, we used to have the old, if you're familiar with the old A-spec, B-spec, C-spec, that was the way we did acquisition back in the day. We said, let's get away from that. And we, we more or less went to a performance-based acquisition process. So we took a stack of papers that was about three feet high. We reduced it to a 28-page, what we called missile performance spec. We were able to do that. We went from two major contractors down to one. We reduced the price of the missile, and we uh, significantly reduced the amount of time it took to go from uh, contract award to delivery of the first asset. And we did that because we simplified the process. We stopped telling the contractor, for instance, how to solder boards. And what we got in exchange for that was a 10-year bumper-to-bumper warranty. We didn't care how thick the solder was. We just said, you know what? If I break, if, if I, Once I buy this missile eight and a half years from now, if it breaks... I get another one. Yep. So we, we got away from some of those. So that takes, you know, forward thinking on, on the leadership's part. And it also, it, it takes it take a, a spine to do some of that stuff because it was done in the face of, well, we don't want to change, right? A lot of people are resistant to change. But change. again, yeah. working for a great leader, um, and I'll be honest with you, uh, some of the people didn't want to get on board with that. So we offered them an opportunity for a career broadening assignment. Right, right. I find it uh, interesting because my frustration in the acquisition process is that we don't hold the program managers uh, or the office that are, is handling that particular uh, program, you know, oversight uh, program responsible. Uh, the cost overruns, the scheduling overruns, the cancellations, I, I just feel like you know, I, I've been a program manager myself for over 30 years, and I don't remember failing on a large program. And I've I've done, you know, lots of programs, large programs. And so the question I have is, you got to have uh, a vision. you got to have a schedule. You have to have the input of what you want to get out of the program and how to achieve it. And then you go hire people to get, get the program done. And... Uh, and that's the way you should do it. And that's one of my pet peeves is holding the program manager responsible and, uh, and and then letting him execute. I don't tell people how to do the job. I'm expecting people to tell me how they will do the job. I know how to do the job because I, uh, I personally pride myself in doing the job. But you have to let people do it. And I appreciate you saying that. It's, it's, uh, it's something that I've followed all along. you got to let them go. I agree, Jose, and I, and I too have seen, um, you know, you and I both have many years of experience. I find it interesting, our, we never had intersecting circles because of what you did and I did, but on, on my side and what I've seen, I've seen the same thing. Seen one major aircraft uh, uh, program manager failed and that person got promoted, got the next star. Yeah. And I, I, I find that almost obscene, I'm not going to lie to you, because I took my role as a, as a PM, uh, you know, cost schedule performance, that was my report card. That's how I was graded every year on, on my, you know, was I going to get promoted? Was it, you know, was I going to get increases? How, how that all. And and to see that not take place, again, I, I'll i take that. I'll, I'll put the blame on that next level of leadership mm-hmm. above this program manager at whatever level he or she was at. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Because that's that's what it's all about. And you have to have a program manager who has that uh, innate vision. Okay, you got that. Then you got to have the oversight. And oversight, it's important too because it fo- focuses the program manager to ensure that his people are delivering and delivering on time. And I'm not saying uh, take you out the first time you fail, but you need to have milestones and those milestones need to be met. And if you can't meet the milestones, you got to get uh, to to a level where you meet them. But let's talk about some of these uh, 
you know, we talk about requirements. There was a GAO report that came out and says uh, uh, the panel found that defining requirements is key to achieving the benefits of competition because procurements with clear requirements are far more likely to produce competitive fixed price offers to meet the customer's needs. So I guess what they're telling me on that is they're looking for fixed price versus cost plus that you've been around and I've been around. Uh, so that was 2007. So I, I'm going to agree with some of that statement exactly. and disagree with some of it also. <laughs> Again, based upon uh, the lumps and bumps and bruises that I've acquired over the years, yeah. I absolutely emphatically agree that requirements definition is crucial. Yeah. You know, if it, To me, it's the foundation. If we were building a house right now, the most crucial thing we do is lay the foundation properly. And to me, that's setting the requirements and, and, and then make sure we understand what those requirements are. Right. So we can talk about requirements all day long, but if, if I'm saying it and you're the vendor and you're reading differently, it's, it's going through that process. So very critical. And, and that's probably been the one thing that stayed the same throughout the years is a good, a good program starts with requirements definition. But then there's two pieces, uh, going back to what you said a little bit. Not only are we to hold the program manager and his or her team accountable for the requirements, we also have to hold the warfighter accountable. We can't let the warfighter change his or her mind every time we have a meeting. Well, I wanted to do something like that. So let's, and then now let's talk about cost plus uh, versus fixed price. Um, At the end of the day, I'll I'll bring up a program many people may may not be aware of because a long time ago, and it's called the A12. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute debacle. Um, I ran into people that 20 years after the program was canceled due to non-performance, that um, people still going up the hill to testify because of the ensuing lawsuits. It was it was a plane that was supposed to be a stealth aircraft and have a lot of capability. So first and foremost, that's a that's a recipe for disaster on a fixed price development because we've never built that before. Mm-hmm. Never. It was a paper airplane, and to move in a fixed price, even then, if you had perfect requirements, there was we had no idea on how to build a stealth bomber in those days. We really right. didn't. And it's tough to go to fixed price. And I, as a contractor working with government, it's tough to do a fixed price contract because, especially if you're doing one of a kind or the first one out the bat, you you don't have the rules of the road. You don't have architectural drawings. You don't have, you're building that as you go. So it's a very, uh, I know the industry is very cautious and nervous when they go to a fixed price because they're, they're willing to help you build it, but they're, they're, they know they're, they're learning as they go. And that's important. They need some flexibility to, to fail or to try different options to give you the best option. Exactly. So let me, now I'll give you an example of a, a good fixed price contract, which I was, I was a part of, I was a, I ran the production and development IPTs for KC-46, and I did that from contract to work to, to critical design review. We kept the program on cost, schedule, and performance. We had a, an incredible set of requirements that were well-defined, but but every time we got ready for one of the design reviews leading up to preliminary design review, the warfighters or their reps were in there trying to say something, and I looked them dead in the eye and said, not going to happen. Yes, yeah, they're ready to change well, it because they're finally understanding the requirements. Right, and things change. We say, nope, this is fixed price development. It was a large contract. Uh, when I left the program at CDR, they were on on schedule, on track. Uh, and we still had to do some things that, that were uh, Act Reform-ish like. We, we had to look at the mm-hmm. process of reviewing all the PDR documents. So, so while you need to be steady on some things, again, the success of a program manager is their ability to look at and say, what can I do to improve the process? So we... we, we one of the things we did to help keep it on, on track was 
looked at and said, you know what, if we go through the normal uh, contract delivery requirements list, otherwise known as a CIVRL list, Mm -hmm. if we do the normal process where the vendor provides it to us and we look at it for 30 days and we turn it back to them and they look at it for 30 days and they don't communicate, we all said, you know what, if we stick to that process, we're going to blow CDR by seven months. And I said, not on my watch, not going to do it. I had my boss's cover. I brought my team in. We put together an entire process. I briefed my leadership. I briefed the leadership of the vendor because it was fixed price. I, I briefed our legal people. Everybody bought into it, and uh, we, we got the PDR on time. But again, it takes it takes someone who's kind of stubborn enough to, to stick to their guns and then being able to share with people why this is the right thing to do right, and to gain right. the trust of your leadership in order to do it, and it was successful. And the PDR defined as? Preliminary design review. So that's where you're going to stabilize your requirements and say this is the baseline we're going to work to. And the uh, CDR? Critical design review says, okay, so back at pre- preliminary design review, said this is the baseline at CDR. Now now the vendor has put together a lot of the things that says this is what we're going to do to meet the baseline that was established at PDR. Correct. And again, very successful. Um, in, in fact, you know, we, we, it was lauded as a command best practice after we implemented, other people saw it said, because we, we reduced the time to, to review 20,000 pages of technical documents by seven months. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading uh, just a little article on the best practices and they say four key elements that are very important as you begin a program is of course, or, organizational alignment and leadership. We touched upon that. Policies and processes are critical. Human capital workforce, we talked about surrounding yourself with good people and and good expertise. And then, of course, the knowledge and information management. We've got to be knowledgeable in the product, have a vision, understand the schedule, the cost, the production, and so forth and so on. So we talked a little bit about requirements. What are some of the debacles on costs or some of the successes on costs? So, you know... Again, revisiting A12 for just a minute, regardless of how well it was defined, it was a, I think it was an overall poor decision to do fixed price because we didn't know. Costs, can we can help to sustain the costs that we tell leadership uh, that we're going to achieve by keeping a good close hold on requirements. But then also when we're going through that process, and one of my old bosses, you should, she would always ask us, is this unobtainium or not? Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, that's a great idea. And Jose, you and I both know that there's no shortage of good idea fairies out there. People say, well, we can do this. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, you can, but how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? It is really going to do what we're going to say. So in order to maintain costs, you have to really understand, can we really get there? Right. You know, and, and we've implemented several processes. We talk about technical readiness level. In other words, how mature is that particular piece? Okay, that's great. And those are all good. But then again, if we don't, and this is where the fail comes. If we don't look at all of these different pieces, they all might be at a high technical readiness level. Mm-hmm. But if we haven't taken a good uh, look at how to assess, okay, so how mature are they to, to be able to, to integrate all those together to end up with the final product, that's where we fail. Just because they're all mature doesn't mean that we have the ability to integrate. Right. We're not understanding from that systems perspective that we talked about a little bit earlier. So that brings up schedule. How important is that schedule as you begin to develop that program or roll it out? If you ask the 105 people or so that I was leading on the KC46 program, they'll tell you he was crazy about schedule. Because the mantra was we made a commitment to the warfighter to deliver uh, four testable aircraft within 72 months of, or whatever. I forget what the time frame was. But it was all about the schedule. Yeah. So we are going to meet the schedule because we made a commitment to our customer. Right? We made yeah, I think the schedule is critical. The Absolutely. milestones are critical. Uh, all those. And that impacts manufacturing, 
which the contractor, you know, some of them fail because we're dealing with unknowns, as you said, unknowns, right. unknowns. If we're developing a product for the first time, we don't have a roadmap. We don't have an architecture. We don't have the schematics already built. We're testing and proving, uh, and we're prodding it a little bit. And then it gets back to delivery. You mentioned how important that delivery time is. Absolutely. And, 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 and we were successful as a team because we chose the right contractual vehicle fixed price because what we were taking was a known entity, a Boeing 767 with some minor modifications and put some extra uh, fuel carrying capacity uh, to do that. So that led right to the workforce training. They had a workforce that was there. Everybody understood the schedule. They knew, they, Boeing, knew how to build that aircraft. And that, that greatly increases our probability of, of meeting our delivery schedules and keeping to our commitment to that ultimate customer. And we've got a little about 30 seconds for work training. What would you say about work training, workforce training? How important is that? Uh, I think it's crucial. Um, you know, I was a Navy civilian for a short period, but I went to the Air Force because I thought their training was better. Mm-hmm. We have several programs. We're exposing young young folks coming in where they, we expose them to PM, program management, mm-hmm. cost, financing, budgeting, contract, and all that. I think that's great because People may come in with one idea of what they want to do, but if we expose them, they might find, oh, you know what, I'm better. You get a better solution that. set. Exactly you get right. a better solution so set. Folks, we've got about 30 seconds. Let me wrap up this second segment. Uh, we It's been fantastic. We're talking about U.S. acquisition process. Do we stay the course or change it? Uh, my guest today is Pascal Gambatiz, Jr., over 30 years' experience. Uh, he's seen both uh, successes and failures, and it's been fantastic to talk about the various activities uh, from uh, the programs themselves, uh, you know, the $400 uh, toilet seat, the $100 hammer, and so forth and so on. Uh, let's when we come back, we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of these programs that have uh, succeeded, some of the programs that have failed, and other uh, acquisition uh, success stories. And uh, we'll be right back in a few minutes. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Success doesn't come by chance. It's a decision to take a chance on you. Attending the University of Choice is a goal, but not a guarantee. 
Dr. Cynthia Cologne offers you the formula of going from good, better, to best, and increasing those chances of receiving that yes to your dream university. Get the one-to-one -one attention every student needs to succeed. Tune in to Destination University, live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Today, Tomorrow's Technologies. To reach the program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to today, tomorrow's technologies at gmail.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back, folks. This is the T3 Show, our third segment. Uh, this is your host, Jose Negron on Voice America on the Variety Channel. Uh, T3, today, tomorrow's technologies. We're discussing today, our topic is U.S. acquisition process, stay the course, or change. And I'm here with uh, Pascal Gabatiz, Jr., 30 years of experience. And we just had a lively discussion on uh, education and training. We talked a little bit about the process itself, some of the uh, uh, changes that have gone on over his 30 plus year career. And then I'd like to just focus sh what should stay in the acquisition process? Because there's certain, th certain things that are very done well, let's put it that way, and then certain things that should be changed or reformed. So, Pascal, what do you think about that? Okay, um, so there's a lot of things that we've done well, and un unfortunately, too many times in the news, you know, you hear about all the bad things, but uh, one thing we hit on heavy in the last segment was requirements definition. We have to ensure that uh, we understand the requirements, and then we have to, and they have to ensure that, okay, once we understand the requirement, can we accomplish it, mm -hmm. right? Because some of the things I've dealt with in the past, oh, we, we, okay, we understand you want to do that, but at the end of the day, we, we can't get there. The technology we have today can't get there. So we have to bound it. We can't, we can't go for that unobtainium that we talked about a little while ago. We need to say that. We need to, we need to continue to develop leaders that are, are okay with thinking outside of the box and looking at the problem, at the same problems differently. We talked about our, our uh, PDR and our, our, uh, the, the stuff that we had to look at from a tech, uh, the technical pages of documentation that we had to go through to get the preliminary design review, 20,000 pages. If we would have done it old school, we'd have blown schedule. That's just an example, right? And, and, and right. I, I think the onus is on the program manager as the leader to, to think creatively and also encourage the team to think creative and say, let's not do it like we did yesterday just because we did it yesterday. And, and you know, that's leadership 101, but too many people are still entrenched in that mentality. It's time to, to, to view this differently. So that's what uh, the things that we need to get away from. Uh, we talked about oversight. Uh, I think I think the system has shown that more and more oversight is not beneficial. We, we've done that. OK, if somebody messes up, more oversight must be the answer. No. But again, I think holding the people accountable. And we've, we've not been doing that lately from an overall perspective. So let's back off a little bit on the oversight, and but let's hold the people more accountable because that in and in in of itself provides some of the oversight that we're looking for and, and making sure that we, we're moving forward. Yeah. Adding another, another layer of bureaucracy does not speed up the progress. 
it just slows it down. And and two right. things you brought up is uh, you know uh, the PM his his program schedule, his workforce, and surrounding himself, and then of course the oversight. And I totally agree. I, I think uh, my biggest pet peeve is the program manager not holding his feet to the fire and making him accountable. And then of course the oversight is just uh, uh, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing we haven't talked about though is money, the budget. I think sometimes the budget plays into that uh, process as well. Do you have any comments on the budget and limitation on cost or the color of money? We call it the color of money. So uh, great point because at the end of the day, if we don't have the budget in place, we can't do it regardless of how well we understand the requirements and whether how well we think we can accomplish the, the, uh, the ultimate objective. Understanding the money and how the money flows is, is crucial. Um, you, you just have to understand it comes from the Congress and how it makes its way down into the, the, pro, the, the program office that's responsible for mm-hmm. executing the program. Understanding the colors of money, that's that's one of the places where a program manager can get into trouble in a heartbeat. There's three things that will ruin a program manager's career. Misappropriation of money, using the wrong color of the money for the wrong thing. The other thing is called the uh, Anti-Deficiency Act, meaning I cannot go on contract. I can't put you on contract for a million dollars if I only have $800,000 in my budget, even if I think I'm going to get to $200,000 the following year. Can't do it. And the other thing is called the Bonafide Need Act, and that's where basically you have to order um, you can only order enough of what you are procuring that can be delivered tw- within 12 months of the first article arriving so it's not gonna it's not gonna happen 12 months after you award the contract it's 12 months after that first article is delivered and all that all that has to do with surrounding money and managing it properly I've, I've been fortunate I've had three multi-billion dollar portfolios and I can honestly tell you I never once got even close to being in trouble with the way I was handling the funding because I surrounded myself with really good financial managers. and, and But I would push the envelope. So, Absolutely. And we have to do that. If we want to make progress, we have to do things differently mm-hmm. within the confines that we're allowed to work in. And I think that's an important fact. That you, and I like to foot stomp that. You gotta keep, keep, while there are rules and requirements and regulations and laws, you still got to push the envelope because otherwise things will not happen. And sometimes you, you, you have to have good judgment to do that. And, and of course, you bear the consequences too. Exactly. And so uh, I always believe that's part of the program manager's job. Pascal, we talked about a lot of stay the course, and we talked a little about a few changes. Are there any other specific changes that you want to talk about that uh, we need to do in the acquisition process to make it better? Yes, Jose. I think one of the things we have to look at um, the the sources that we draw our information on on where we think the threat is going today and tomorrow, because that can drive a you can you can bankrupt programs in a hurry if we overestimate what we think the threat is going to look like. And it's hard to do. Granted, it's hard to do saying where is where the bad guy is going to be with their technologies three to five to ten years from now. But I think we need to put a little a little stronger tie on that to, to make sure that what we're shooting at is realistic and, and not something that we think may or may not happen. Right, right. And, and, and the bottom line is the acquisition process, I mean, if we look at it, is about taking those requirements building that strong foundation, having that strong schedule, understanding what you're building to accomplish those uh, uh, um, uh, requirements, and then, of course, producing. And you have lots of people in a large billion-dollar program managing. You got various contractors. You probably had over 100 contractors there, over uh, 50 to 100 uh, uh, government oversights and, and stuff like that. So working that issue is critical. 
Exactly. And, and, and one other thing I would say to the program managers is when, when you're having a failure, don't try to tap dance around it. I, one quick story, one of my programs, we, we had a new variant of the missile. I was at a point where I was supposed to be delivering 15 to 20 missiles a month, and I was only delivering two. And I had a brief, the, the top acquisition executive for the Navy and my uh, three-star admiral sponsor. And I opened right up and I said, look, we we blew it. We overestimated on how quickly our, our we could produce this missile. And I told him what I had done. I worked with my counterpart on how to get well on the program and uh, and, and, and committed that's what we were doing. And, and both of them at the end of the briefing thanked me for being honest. And I, again, I share that as a teaching moment for, for my young PMs that, I, that I've been able to teach in many of the years. If you make a mistake, own it. Own it. And then, but then determine and then let leadership know, okay, I've got this. If I need help, I'll ask you. If not, this is what I'm going to do to rectify. And it, and I got to tell you, it, it, when when the top acquisition executive in the Navy walked up to me and said, "Thank you for your honesty and and and, and being squared with us," it, that meant the world to me. That is perfect because I, I really do believe. Look, you're not going to do everything well, and we do have failures throughout our career, but we keep owning it. But more importantly, learn from it. A lot of people can't learn from their mistakes or learn from other people's mistakes. I remember when I was growing up or when I was a young lieutenant, it says, try to learn from other people's mistakes. Being hard-headed, of course, I had to learn from my own, and uh, and that happens. But I made it a point to learn. And uh, one of the things I've, I was taught and I always knew was right, but one of the things at DARPA, which I happened to work in the last uh, five years of my life there uh, for the government, was we could fail. But you had to learn from that failure. Failure is okay, but learning from failure is critical. As we talk about other programs and we we move forward, uh, what what else would you recommend on the cleanup or stay the course on acquisition? The training. How long is the training? Um, you know, it's a good point. So so in our in our uh, quest to do things better and faster and all that, I've, I've seen the changes in how they run. The training courses. When I took right. when I took the course to become a level three certified PM, it was fourteen weeks. That might have been not long enough for too long, but it was okay at the time. Now what I see is they do six weeks online, then they go to school for six weeks. Well, well part That's of being weeks, yeah. yeah, but but part of that part of being a PM, what I learned most about being in school for fourteen weeks is how to deal with other people. Yeah. How do I deal with engineers? Because engineers inherently think differently than program managers who think differently than contracting officers who certainly think differently than security officers. So what I learned was, okay, how to bring together this diverse group of people, making sure they understand what is the end goal here. Yeah, I reminded my teams all the time on KC-46, the end goal is four aircraft by this date. Yeah, I think that's critical. Uh, we're always going to be individuals. Uh, but that's also a, a positive if you use it correctly, okay? It can be a negative, but it can also be a positive. And I always surround myself, and even today when we're call, uh, in the military, we're going to the multi-domain, multi-analysis. Multi well, guess what? To me, that means you need an operator, an intel guy, and a research or acquisition guy, okay? Because that's the only way you're going to solve any problems. Right. And I think it's inherent on the PM or the lead to, to explain to them the one thing they have in common, and that's what, to deliver a product to the user that's going to work. 
right? Right. That, that, that's their one com. That's that's the thread that ties all them together. But they need to come in as individuals to work together to deliver that project. And again, the team leader, the PM, it's his or her uh, responsibility to make sure they understand what are they working for. And when I've done that in my professional life and even in, in my personal life um, as a youth pastor, I find you get tremendous results when you can paint that vision for them and help them understand what is their role in accomplishing that vision and then empowering them to go off and do it, you get amazing results. Being a government guy, you know, you're dealing with contractors. And we talked a little bit about the contractors, but what would you recommend when you're talking to the contractor? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, a great, that's a great point. One of the things we learned way back when, when we did all the, you know, lightning bolts from Darlene Drew, was to learn that, you know what, we do not have an adversarial relationship with our prime contractor. And I, I see that time and time and time again. When, when again, understanding what each other's objectives were, uh, they were t- they had no idea why we kept asking them to bill us. Well, we had to meet our expenditures, and they they were clueless. We had no ideas on when was the best time of the year to award a contract that was that would look better for their shareholders. Going through some th- simple things like that, and again, understanding what is the common goal of this team. The common goal was to deliver the best air-to-air weapon in the world to defeat some rather ornery uh, adversaries, mm-hmm. and when and I and, and it works. It, it works. I've worked in both program offices where it's adversarial, it doesn't work. When we collaborate, it te- it doesn't eliminate all your problems, but it allows you to work towards solution much better. Folks, thank you uh, for listening to today's show. We've been talking to uh, Pascal Gabatiz, Jr., 30 years of acquisition. We've talked about education and training. We've talked about uh, the reform process, and we've talked about should we change it or not change it. And what's important is you need a uh, good uh, program management so that you can uh, ensure your costs, your schedule, and your performance are done. You need a good foundation for the requirements. And of course, uh, you need to stay on top of the schedule. And and more oversight doesn't help the process. It hurts the process. Giving the program manager responsibility and also telling him when he's doing something wrong is also just as beneficial. So today, I'd like to thank uh, Pascal for joining us. Uh, That was a quick hour and we talked about the uh, U.S. acquisition process should it stay uh, the course or change and it's a little bit of both. Uh, We've got some good points. We've got some points that we need to change. More importantly, I'd like to thank uh, Dee Daniels, my executive producer. And, of course, more. uh, I talk to her every day, Alexandria Loreno, who is my executive assistant. I call her A3. And today's topic was... uh, was uh, technology, of course, U.S. acquisition process, stay the course or or change, and how does that impact the technology of the future? So that's really important. Until our next week's program, this is Jose Negron on Voice America, and I'll bid you goodbye. Thank you for listening to Today, Tomorrow's Technologies. We hope you'll join your host, Jose Negron, for another exciting program next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Enjoy the rest of your week.